Hey, good morning, church. My name is Ben Seaman. I serve on staff here as our lead minister. Whether you're on campus or joining us online, welcome. We're so glad that you're here for our summer series, Pray Like This. Before we jump into our text, Matthew chapter 6, if you have a Bible or a smartphone, download the Bible app, you can go to Matthew 6, 9 through 13. We'll be there for the next really couple of weeks. Before we jump into that text, I'm excited to announce our Journey Out Global Mission Trip opportunities. We will be going to El Salvador and Kenya next year. And so we put together sort of a little fun promo video. I want you to take a moment to sort of check this out. Hey, Gail, I think I'm ready to go on my trip. Um, wait, wait, you're ready? Yeah, I've got my camera. I've got my fanny pack with, I think I put like a thousand dollars of Monopoly money in here. I've got my Hawaiian shirt and, and my, my hat. I think I'm ready to go. And, and what's, what's this, wait. Well, this is for, you know, work days and I have, you know, when I get to preach and my preaching shoes, $9.99 store. Um, yeah, I think I'm ready to go. You've got suits? I mean, it's not, it's not what we're supposed to bring? Um, um, no, not exactly, but, um, whew, wow, okay. Alright, well here's the good news. Here's the good news. The trip's not till 2022. Oh. So I appreciate you committing to going to El Salvador and to Kenya. Mm -hmm. But um I'm thinking that maybe you're gonna need a little bit of training mm -hmm. before we go, a little bit more information on what we're gonna do, why we're there, and um but I think you'll be ready. Okay. I think I think you'll be ready. We might have to do a few changes to your suitcase. Okay. But all right, sounds good. I think I think you'll be ready by 2022. Yeah. With lots of training. Hey, if you want to join us in 2022 to go to El Salvador and Kenya, at the end of the month on July 25th, we have an information meeting. We'd love for you to come be a part of it. Sign up on our event page today. Body paint not included. I promise you, the body paint is not mine, okay? That was Gail's suitcase and all, her, all of her props. Yes, Gail, I'm throwing you under the bus. I hope you're enjoying your vacation. All right, week two of Pray Like This. We're going to jump into our text. If you have your Bibles or smartphones, uh, go with me to Matthew 6, 9 through 13. This is what Jesus says in response to the disciples' request. Will you teach us how to pray? This is what Jesus says. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. There is something about Jesus' prayer life that the disciples uh, caught on to. And in a lot of spiritual growth, uh, it, I mean, some of it is taught, right? Like you've got to read your Bible. But a lot of it is caught in the sense of Jesus was setting an example for his disciples. And the disciples were making the connection. Uh, Jesus can talk tolerate a lot of people in, a, in any given day. Uh, Jesus can tolerate the heat of the Middle East. Jesus is putting up with us every single day. I'm sure we're annoying. And yet Jesus maintains this really healthy, peaceful rhythm. And the disciples started connecting the dots that they think it's connected to his prayer life, which is why the disciples asked Jesus, would you teach us how to pray like you? And today we're going to talk about 
the section of the prayer that could probably be one of the most challenging parts of the prayer. At least it is for me. And it's the part where Jesus says, if you're going to pray, if you're going to pray and connect with the Father, you have to ask him on a regular basis. I want to see your kingdom ruling and reigning here on earth. In Salem, at my school, at my job, in my neighborhood, where I work, where I play, the sports teams I'm a part of, I want to be part of that and bringing that here to earth. When I was, uh, shortly after 9-11, my youth pastor left Cincinnati to plant a church in Brooklyn. I've mentioned it a few times, but uh, in that internship, I, uh, I believe it was 2008 or so, I don't really remember, uh, I met my now good friend Chris. He was uh, uh, in, in film school, and uh, he and I got along great. We both have very uh, sarcastic, you can decide if it's intelligent, uh, senses of humor. And I remember he and I were talking about, you know, what are we going to do this weekend? You know, we had a day off. We wanted to go into Manhattan. New York's a great city to be in if you have a day off. And uh, I think he got a little frustrated with me. <clears throat> and he said, man, I don't know, Ben. We'll do whatever. It's your world. I'm just living in it. And I, when he said that, I was like, it's my, wait a minute. When he said the back end statement, I'm like, wait, are you, are you telling me that I'm, you know, into, uh, relationally unaware that I'm like, you know, imposing what I want to do over the weekend on you, right? And he's like, uh, yeah, kind of. And I was like, man, I really hate and love that statement. And throughout our relationship, when we would, and still to this day, when we annoy each other, I annoy him more than he annoys me. He says, hey, man, like, calm down. It's your world. I'm just living in it, right? When we pray, your kingdom come, it is a clash between which kingdom is going to win out, right? Are we going to follow King Jesus, or are we going to allow Jesus to be part of our kingdom, and he can have visitation rights to see us uh, on the weekends and when it's beneficial to us? So as we think about praying, your kingdom come, let's think about this big idea. We pray your kingdom come because we want to partner with God to do the work of God. It's an intentional prayer that expects and maybe even demands results in praying it. God, I, this is how I want to spend my life, is pursuing your kingdom and bringing the reality of heaven, the kingdom of God, here on earth. So if we're going to pray your kingdom come, uh, here are a few, few things that we have to kind of, I think, come to, come to terms with. Praying your kingdom come means I'm going to surrender my kingdom. I'm going to surrender my kingdom, which is very difficult because I think one of the defining characteristics of sin is our pride and wanting to hold on to what we want to do. So before I talk about the positive side of this prayer, let's talk about sort of the, the lies that we believe where we refuse to give up our kingdom. Before, um, well, I'm sorry, after Jesus was baptized, uh, the Gospels read that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, right? And, and a lot, we, we say this a lot in our journey. Why is God allowing this to happen to me? I think it's very interesting that after Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to have this encounter with the devil and Satan, whatever you want to call him. He goes by multiple names. Uh, and Satan is going to challenge Jesus's kingdom. Now, here's what you need to know before we talk about that narrative in Matthew 4. When Jesus comes out of the water, the heavenly father, our heavenly father speaks an identity over Jesus. 
He comes out of the water, and you have the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. One of the very rare times that the Trinity is mentioned in the same story in the Gospels, also showing that baptism is like really, really important. Um, <clears throat> the Father says of Jesus, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. In other words, this is my kid. I love my son. I only, not only love my son, I actually like him, and I delight in my son. Now, here's why you need to know this and why this is important to you. Before Jesus began ministry, his identity was already solidified by his father. When you wake up tomorrow and begin your routine of getting ready for work or getting the kids ready for school, whatever happens tomorrow... The truest thing about you as a Christ follower is that you are a beloved son and daughter of God. So if we were to use 2021 language, Jesus gets out of Bible college and we hire him. Wouldn't that be great at Rockingham Christian Church? And before the first day on the job, he prays to his father and he gets a word from his father that says, it doesn't matter what happens when you're a pastor at RCC. It doesn't matter if you disappoint people. It doesn't matter if the church grows or dwindles. You are my son, and I love you. This is important for what is about to immediately happen to Jesus. Here are three lies that we believe about our little kingdoms, and we refuse to hand them over to Jesus. Number one, we believe the lie that I am what I do. I am my performance. I am my output. And after all, good performances, you get raises, you get good grades, you get into college. Life seems to be you know, going better for you when you perform well. Well, in Matthew 4, 2 through 3, uh, the text reads, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus, he was hungry. The tempter, that's the devil or Satan, came to him and said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. If you are God in the flesh, Jesus, why don't you perform for me and show me that you are who you claim to be? Now, when you read the Gospel of John, miracles are a big deal to John. Why? Glad you asked. Miracles are used to prove the divinity of Jesus. So it's not unlike Jesus, like Jesus could do that, but he also knows what the devil is trying to get him to do to sacrifice his identity, that if he doesn't do what Satan does, if he doesn't do what culture wants, if he doesn't perform well, then his father will not love him. I think that preaches even today. The second lie we believe is, I am what I have. I am my possessions. I am my stuff. Matthew 4, 5 through 6, uh, the devil took him, Jesus, to the holy city, Jerusalem, and had him stand on the high, highest point of the temple, if you are the Son of God, kind of weird Jesus and the devil hanging out on a roof. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus, if you are who you claim to be, which is like God, you have literally like eternal, endless resources. But what does Paul tell us? about the nature of Christ in Philippians 2. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but what? He humbled himself. Yes, he has all of the power, all of the authority. He could have crushed Jesus right, right then and there and skipped the whole cross thing. Problem is, we'd still be dead in our sin. Even when Jesus is on the cross, he could have summoned the angels. He could have sent an earthquake and annihilated all of the Roman soldiers, but he didn't because his purpose 
was to die for our sin, to be our sin bearer. And so Jesus' life was not the sum total of his stuff. Jesus' life was not the sum total of his big house, his nice cars, his, all of his iPhones and all of his Apple products. The sum total of who Jesus was is that he was a beloved son of God. The third lie we believe about our little kingdom and our little identities is I am what others think of me. My popularity is the thing that defines me. Matthew 4, 8 through 9, uh, the text reads, The devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all of the kingdoms of the world with splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus, if you would just worship me, I will, I will connect you with the people that you need to know. Which is sort of kind of funny, right? Because Jesus is sort of a no-name right now. I mean, sure, his family and his neighborhood buddies like know Jesus, but his fame is not yet at a level as to where it will be by the time he is crucified. Parents, if you have a middle school or high school student, I don't even I don't need to meet them. All right. Because uh, I can get to the Hall of Fame by hitting the baseball one out of every three at bat. So I might be wrong with some of your kids, but this is the defining false narrative, false self that your high school students are dealing with. I am my popularity because in middle school and high school, I am my friendships. And if I post a photo on Instagram, if I make a funny video on TikTok, if I send somebody a snap and it doesn't get a certain amount of likes in a certain amount of time, I will delete it. Let me tell you something. (laughs) The battle of popularity is also a demonic spiritual battle as well. And what your kids, um, how your kids see themselves and how their friends see them has incredible spiritual implications. Church, we are not what we do, we are not what we have, and we are not who people think we are or should be or even like us. I think, I hope that's a good word for you today. In Psalm 139, uh, the writer says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me into the way of everlasting. Show me the Jesus way. Now, when, when the writer says, Search me, it is, it is sort of like watching your favorite um, CSI show. Uh, somebody is getting arrested for a crime they know they committed. They're heading downtown as it is in every cop show, right? And they're trying to create a narrative of, did I leave anything behind? Is my DNA there? Is the weapon there? And so when they get into the interrogation room, the sheriff or the police officer or some investigator of some sort will be grilling them. Like, where were you between this time? Uh, Who were you with? Do you have an alibi? And they begin the investigation, uh, and they begin searching for the truth. That's what uh, the writer here is saying. God, investigate me as if an investigator would investigate me for a crime I knew I committed but was trying to get out of. So when we think about the false narratives that we believe for our little kingdoms, If you were to be bold enough this week to pray the prayer, search me, God, which of the three kingdoms, false narratives about myself, which of those three am I actually believing to be true? Because I don't want to have any offensive way in me, Lord. We pray your kingdom come because we must surrender ours. We pray your kingdom come because we want, I would even say need, we want a new regime or a new reality. In Matthew 20, 25 through 28, he talks of, Jesus is going to talk about not just the Gentile ruler and reign 
uh, but historically, read, read your history books, study up on nations and, and political systems and war, Jesus is going to call out every country that's ever existed and their political systems. Jesus called them together and said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. What is it? Their authority, right? They're the captain of the football team and they know it and they like it and they're going to tell you about it. Their high officials exercise authority over them. This is the way of Jesus now. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Almost every political entity, country, political system, economical system tends to rule and reign through power and propaganda or power and force every country, including ours. Jesus says, not so with you. The way of the kingdom is ushered into through love and serving other people. We are Christians in the kingdom of God before we are Americans in this great country that we call America. And so our political view, our political bent is towards the kingdom of God, which is away from power, dominance, and lording authority over people to leaning towards the way of Jesus. I don't want any offensive way. Lead me in the way of under everlasting, as the writer of Psalm 139 says. It's the way of love and serving other people. The kingdom of God is a political idea in the Gospels. So many times we sort of uh, only look at the spiritual side, but if you are reading the Gospels as a historical document, which it claims to be, the kingdom of God was a political term. And Jesus was using this political ideology to turn the Israelites up over their heads. Let me, let me show you some examples. When Jesus ate with other people, he would eat time and time again with the wrong sorts of people that were not acceptable to God under Jewish Levitical law and Jewish Levitical code. Jesus, now this is something we take for granted. And we, we just really, uh, we just sort of overlook it because, you know, we think the defining characteristic of God is love and he, he's quick to forgive people. But, but there's so much massive implication. When I tell you this, I want you to think about the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, Zacchaeus, all of these people that are not Jews. When Jesus forgives other people who are outside of Israel's border... Now, why does that matter? There's five covenants in the Bible. The one the Israelites really love is that if you are an Israelite under the reign of King David, right? So, so your God favors countries. Now you're in God's kingdom. But the final covenant in the Bible is not tied to a country or borders. It's tied to Jesus. And so when Jesus begins forgiving, oh my goodness, Gentiles, women, Men, this changes everything. Because now the rule and reign of God and the kingdom of God is open to slaves, to free, free people, men, women, children, elderly. It's open to everybody if they're willing, if they're willing to receive and believe in the gospel. Jesus' kingdom is a new regime. It's like any other kingdom, any other political entity that we will ever experience in our lives. 
in the people you work with, the people you play sports with, the people that you go to school with, how you present yourself online, the way the kingdom of God is ushered into those realities is if you are willing to love and serve other people, which is a direct assault on our ego, right? Because we want what we want. We are our possessions. We are our performance. And we are, who are we if people don't like us? One of my favorite lyrics just came to my head, Rich Mullins, uh, in a song, he says, it's okay to be lonely as long as you're free. Popularity can be an idol, I think, sometimes that we pursue. We pray your kingdom come because we need to surrender ours. We pray your kingdom come because the way the world does life is not working. It is a cutthroat evolutionary reality that we all live in. And the reality that we get to usher in as Christ followers is a reality that people are aware of the kingdom of God, not through power and dominance, but through love and service. We pray your kingdom come because we want to live for our, we want to live for our king. Here's a few ways that we do that. We have an insatiable appetite to read God's word. Matthew 5, 19 through 20. Here's how Jesus uses the Bible that you read. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of God. If that's not a word for 2021, I don't know what is. Oh, Jesus. Oh, man. He's my homeboy. I love him. I bought the shirt in the 90s. I love all of these teachings about Jesus, except for this one. I don't like the way he views sexuality, divorce, fine, you, Sermon on the Mount, chapters uh, 5, 6, and 7. There's tons of, tons of teachings of Jesus that people love. People love social action, social justice teaching right now. But some of the purity, ethical stuff that Jesus teaches, ah, that, that's not for me, Jesus. Jesus says, be careful, because if you start removing stuff from my Bible, you won't be in the kingdom of heaven. But I went to RCC and got baptized. There's a video of it, and I got a t-shirt. Jesus like, I don't care. You're denying what I'm teaching. Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. To be a citizen of the kingdom of God is to have a deep hunger and love for God's word. We're just lazy, church. Like, we're just lazy. This is the information age. There's no reason why any of us can say, should say, I didn't know Jesus taught that. We, we, ha- we have to read our Bible. We have to read our text. That's why I keep pushing the Bible app. There's so many like instant devotionals that you guys can read and read for yourselves. There's many on the life of Christ. There's many on the Lord's Prayer that you could pick up today and, and go through on your phone uh, over the next week. We have to have a deep hunger and love for God's Word, but it's just not that we learn it. We have to do it. Being part of the kingdom of God is meaning that we're obedient to King Jesus. In Matthew 21, 43, Jesus says, I tell you, man, (laughs) I tell you that the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying this, will be taken away from you and given to people who will produce its fruit. So when Jesus says, what did you do with my gospel? What are we going to tell him? Nothing? Nothing? Jesus has some very strong language for Christians. If you're here today or watching online, you're not a Christian. This isn't for you, but you're welcome to lean in. Jesus has very harsh language to say for supposed Jesus followers that have bear no fruit in the kingdom of God. We pursue the kingdom of God also because he's no, it's number one on our to-do list. Every morning we wake up, number one, pursue the kingdom of God. But you've got to think like a Jew. 
Number one doesn't mean top of the list. Number one means it's at the center of our lives. So everything about our day, our work life, our home life, school, sports, vacations, summer fun, all of that stuff that we're experiencing right now, it takes precedent. It's at the center of our lives, which is to say it sits on our hearts, which is our seat of our emotions, and cognitively, the decision of the will. This is where we make decisions from. I know we think it's here, but to Jesus and a Jewish rabbi, it's right Actually, it's right here. And so when we think about uh, pursuing the kingdom of God, it's not that he's number one on our list as it's a check sheet. It's that he's at the center of it. And here's the deal. A lot of us are involved in really good things. Nothing wrong with it. They're just not ultimate things. And so part of a Jesus follower as a citizen of the kingdom of God, it's constantly evaluating what's, what's, not, what's getting in the way of my pursuit of the kingdom of God, Right? But you're going to see this in your attitude. It'll change. You'll become short with people. You'll, you'll, you'll love that you're so busy. <laughs> uh, you're, you're not going to get a good night's rest. When that happens, you have to reevaluate. Okay, I want the kingdom of God at the center of my life. What is compromising that? We pray your kingdom come because we need to surrender ours. We want a new regime, and we want to live for our king. Fourthly, we pray for our kingdom because we anticipate the return of our king. A little history lesson. Uh, before we read a parable all the way in the depths of Matthew uh, chapter 19, parable of the mina. Mina is an economic word. It's like three, three months of salary, give or take. So whatever you make in a month, multiply that by three. We'll get that to in a second. Most people know Herod. We talk about him at least every Christmas. He's the guy that says, I'm threatened by this baby, Jesus. We need to kill him. Firstborn, kill them all uh, because I'm going to be king and I'm going to rule and reign. Right at, right at Christmas, you see the physical, political reality that Jesus is presenting. At least that's what Herod thinks, that this baby that's going to be born, and we celebrate every 25th of December, was a political threat to Herod. So I'm going to read you a text in Matthew 19. And Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. Here's why you should care about this. When you read the Gospels, you have to read with the cross in the back of your mind. Because that's how the writers write the Gospels. So everything about the cross, every, every, sorry, every story that you read in the Gospels, you have to consider the shadow of the cross. So when you read texts where Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem, that means that, that should be a light bulb. Okay, we're getting near to the end of Jesus' life. When I read to you Matthew 19, a few things have happened in Herod's life. He's dead, and uh, his two sons, or is about to die, his two sons uh, are going to be positioned to rule over parts of his kingdom, the north and the south. Now, the north would be ruled over uh, Galilee. The south would be Jerusalem. Everybody wanted to rule over Jerusalem. Why do you think that? Because that's where the money is. And what happens where the money is? There is power. Not love and service, there is power. And before Herod dies, he, he does a switcheroo, and the son that was supposed to rule over Galilee is now shifted to Jerusalem and vice versa. The Jews, Jerusalem, the center of Judaism, hated Archelaus, Herod's son. Hated him. Let me tell you why. In one of his first PR moves, he go in, in Passover. He goes to um, Passover, and the Jews start pelting him with like citrons or whatever. He gets so hurt about it, he kills like three thousand Jewish men. Like they hate this guy. Okay, one day he's home, and his wife goes, "Honey, you are so incredible. 
right? Guys, don't, we love hearing that, don't we? Um, we, we? We love hearing I love you, but we love hearing I'm proud of you more, maybe. I don't know, at least I do. Um, you should be king. And uh, Archelaus is like, that, yes, yes, I should be king. Why don't you head to Caesar to see if he would um, ordain you as king? And so he makes his way, the trek, uh, to be uh, ordained as a king. Uh, there's a band of you know, 30 to 50 Jewish men that actually beat Archelaus to Caesar and say, this dude is bad news. We hate this guy. And as a result, he is not, he is not ordained as a king. And the Jews were super happy and proud because they hated this guy. Now, Put that in the back burner. Let's read this parable. Matthew 19, 11 through 27. While they were listening to this, Jesus went to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. So when you think Jerusalem, center of religion, center of political power and money, force, dominance, all of that rolled into one. And the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Guns, military, tanks, uh, uh, chariots, horses. But that's not the kingdom of God. Verse 12, he said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then return. Immediately, immediately, the crowd would go, Oh, Jesus is about to tell a story about Herod's son. Verse 13, so he called, oh, verse 12, I like, no, I'm getting too excited. Verse 13, let's just go there. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minus. Now put this to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him, right? It's good to know Jewish history. His subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. Jesus is telling this parable in light of what is going on with Herod's son. And the Jews who are hearing this going, oh, man, I like this. I hope Jesus hates Archelaus as much as we hate him. And then Jesus gets to verse 15. He was made king, however, <laughs> and returned home. This would have made the Jews livid. Jesus, you're a terrible storyteller. No, we, 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 we beat him to Caesar. He's not a king. And Jesus continues. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, my mina has earned ten more, and the owner gave him uh, leadership over ten cities. Uh, the second, verse 18, same thing. I increased it. Now he's leading over five cities. Let's get to verse 20. The servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina, your three-month salary. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you. Because you are a hard man, you take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. And then the hammer drops. Verse 22, his master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, talking, uh, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you put my money, why didn't you put my money in the deposit? Why didn't you take it to U.S. Bank and get like 20 bucks interest? So that when I came back, I would have collected just a little bit of interest. Come on, man. Didn't you read Dave Ramsey's books? Verse 24. Then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minus. Sir, they said, he already has ten. This, church, this, this is the hard part here. He replied, I tell you that everyone who has more will be given. Jesus rewards stewardship. But as for the one who has nothing... 
the one that didn't do anything, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to bring to be the king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Why do you bury money in a first century agricultural farming community kind of setting? Here's why. You bury money, you remember the coordinates, and you wait. You let days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months, and months turns into years. Because you believe the king is not coming back. And so if you wait a couple years and the king never comes back, you've got 10 months salary. That's a nice little, you know, little retirement nest egg for you. The reason why Christians don't bear fruit is because we don't believe Jesus is coming back. The reason why people never baptize anybody, share their faith, plant churches, uh, read the Bible, join a life group, give, all that other stuff, and functionality, there's tons of reasons, but for the purpose of this sermon, we don't believe Jesus is coming back. And if you live your life... (laughs) With so many wonderful opportunities, like this phenomenal church, great community. If Jesus says, I'm giving you my gospel, I'm going away for like a really long time. When I come back, I want to see fruit. And if Jesus comes back, or when he comes back, and we have nothing to show forth, show for him because we didn't honestly believe he would come back because we're too intelligent in 2021. According to verse 26 and 27, Jesus will look at us and say, go to hell. Go to hell. But Jesus, I went to Rockingham Christian Church. I got dunked. There's a video. I got a t-shirt. I gave 12% of my income. Jesus said, I gave you my gospel and you buried it. Not because you were safe, because you didn't believe I was going to return. And Jesus ends this parable by saying, bring them here here, and kill them in front of me. This is the same narrative at the end of Matthew when Jesus divides the sheep and the goats. There are people in our world and in our church that say they are Jesus followers and yet have no fruit to show that. Church, I am not talking about legalism. There's a book called Galatians that really debunks that. What I'm talking about is that Jesus expects a return on our investment, on his investment in us. Are we going to be the kind of church that says, oh, great sermon, I'm not going to do anything with it? (laughs) Uh, Or are we going to be the church that believes our king, like our king is coming back? Because we sure care a lot about political elections, especially the last one. Do we care more about who's running this country than who's running the world? Church, if we do, Jesus is going to come back and look at us and say, what did you do with my gospel? And we will have nothing to tell him. And he will look at us and say, go to hell. I don't know you. You claim to follow me, but I don't, I don't, I don't know you. So what does that mean? What does that heavy truth mean for us? It's time to get back in the game, church. It's time to invite friends. It's time to get connected, join a surf team. Uh, it's time to, let's take this stinking thing off of the baptistry. I, w- I want to wear swimming trunks more than I wear jeans because people keep getting baptized. 
Let's start sharing our faith again. Like, I know COVID's not over, but a lot of restrictions have lifted. It is time to make a cognitive decision right now, a line in the sand. Our king's returning. What are we going to do with his gospel? We pray your kingdom come because ours does not work. We want a new regime. We want to live as citizens in the kingdom of God because we believe that one day, one day, our king is going to return and ask, what did you do with my gospel? What has changed about the spiritual reality of Salem, of Salem High School, Woodbury Middle School, your jobs, and where you live, play, work, and have fun? Praying your kingdom come is a cry for the rule and reign of God to be present in our midst. And that only happens, that only happens when men and women, students and adults, are willing to love and serve other people.